0: Good afternoon
1: and welcome. We know that the long-term care sector is hardest hit in the pandemic. As of yesterday, there were outbreaks in 121 homes with around 2,000 residents, staff and other people who have been affected. The new ban forbidding workers to work in more than one facility has exacerbated the staffing shortage. And last week, the province announced that it would be sending teams from hospitals into nursing homes to help out. The province's medical officer of health is reporting that there have been 400 requests for help, and those calls have been answered. So we'd like to hear from you if you have any comment or question about that. 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 And joining me now, Dr. Brian Hodges, Executive Vice President of Education and Chief Medical Officer at the University Health Network. He is one of the physicians who volunteered to help from UHN and Lisa Levin, Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. You're welcome. So Dr. Hodges, uh, tell us uh, you, were, you were part of a, a big team from UHN that volunteered to go into nursing homes. So tell me where you went, what you did, how did it go?
2: That's correct. On uh, very end of last week, Thursday, we had a call from the Ministry of Health that we were asked to help support the Rakai Centres, which are two homes in downtown Toronto, Sherburn and Wellesley sites. And so immediately, myself and uh, the chief uh, doctor and the chief nurse, Dr. Joy Richards and I, together with a lot of our colleagues from infection control and, and the various areas of the hospital, did a rapid assessment together under the guidance of their CEO, uh, Sue Graham Nutter. And right away, we started to redeploy. We had uh, an RN go in that night for the first night. And then over the weekend, we covered some, I think, 52 shifts of uh, frontline staff, and Joy and I together have been rounding uh, daily there.
1: Uh-huh, and and what have you been doing there, Dr. Hodges? Uh, well,
2: <laughs> the, uh, it's important to understand uh, what um, the care needs in a long-term care institution are and what's happened in some of those that have uh, reached a crisis point. Because of either sickness of staff or staff um, uh, being unable or unwilling to come to work, the staffing levels dropped. Much of the care done in in, uh, long-term care is personal support workers. So the vast majority of our staff uh, have been deployed to do frontline work, bathing patients, caring for them, positioning, um, feeding patients. We have also had requests uh, and we've supported with RNs and RPNs to help with uh, covering shifts in medication and uh, basic medical care. Uh, as well as uh, support for areas like palliative care, geriatric services, but also house cleaning and infection prevention and control.
1: So you had doctors basically uh, working as personal support workers. Uh, Were you doing that? Yes. uh, Yes.
2: Uh, Of course, I'm the chief doctor, so I try to spend most of my time interacting with the patients. I visited all the wards, uh, each day together with the chief nurse. So my own personal role, I did train as a PSW myself before and during medical school. But, um, yes, we had, uh, largely, uh, RNs and RPNs doing that work, but we had 18 physicians put up their hand to volunteer. And when I told them we, the home didn't really need physicians because they have an excellent medical staff, about a dozen of them volunteered to be PSWs. So yes, over the weekend, physicians from our, from UHM hospitals were working caring for, uh, frail seniors and, and feeding, uh, uh, toileting, um, mobility issues, all of the PSW functions. Uh,
1: just, just a question. And I, I don't mean this the wrong way, but were, were the physicians who put up their hands to do that? Were, was it mostly women?
2: Uh, no, um, it's a great question. Uh, of course, uh, among our nursing staff, the ratio of men to women is, uh, is, there are more women, but it, interestingly enough, in those, I didn't do a count, but great question. But um, the team that one of the teams I met with uh, when there was some media came to talk to us, it was actually two male nurses and two female physicians. So I think we've had a pretty good diversity of staff.
1: Okay, uh, let's bring in Lisa Eleven. Uh, so I gather that that this has been repeated throughout the province because uh, we were told that there were four hundred requests for help and that they've been answered. How far, Lisa Eleven, will that go to relieving the the pressure in long term care homes? Well, it certainly is a big help, Libby. Uh, but I'm not
3: sure how many of the hospitals are bringing forward staff in the way UHN did. Uh, I just, I don't have that information. I do know in a couple of cases, hospitals have not been helpful. And um, so I know that the ministry has tried to bring in home care staff, local health integration network staff. We've also worked with the home care agency to bring staff in. It's a really tough problem to try and redeploy people. But certainly uh, UHN has done an amazing job and so have a number of other hospitals.
1: Uh, who, who else, which other hospitals would you like to give a good shout out to? Um, I think Blue, Blue Water, they're called,
3: um, up north, is, has apparently helped. And I know Michael Guerin did some great did testing. No, Women's College did testing uh, at homes. And Michael Guerin has been doing an amazing job in the Toronto area, sending out staff and supplies to our member homes and other
4: homes.
1: Okay, but uh, it hasn't uh, hasn't filled the need as far as you know. Well, the need is quite large, and
3: it's a challenging issue to redeploy staff and get available staff, and people who are willing to do this. Not everybody is willing to do this kind of work.
1: And Dr. Hodges, this is entirely on a volunteer basis, correct?
2: Yes, for now, but I I think that we're very sensitive to the needs here, and last night, uh, we received, uh, or yesterday, a provincial directive that paired up uh, more of us, us with more homes. So today, I'm working hard with our team. We now have 13 long-term care homes that will be working together with UHN. Uh, exactly as was stated, it's, a, it's an enormous uh, personnel challenge, and I don't personally believe that volunteers will be enough. I understand there's some consideration underway about the degree to which we might have other ways of redeploying some of our staff from acute care and from other healthcare organizations uh, through redeployment mechanisms to help our long-term care partners.
1: Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And when your staff volunteer now, are they paid extra for this?
2: No, uh, there's two types of staff. Those are our regular staff. We've already been redeploying all over the hospital anyway. We have many staff who redeployed to uh, uh, intensive care when that was ramping up to emerge and ICU. Typically, staff are paid for the job they're always paid for and redeployed to do different work, but paid in the same way as before. The uh, physicians uh, were all volunteers, so they're they're not being paid.
1: Uh, Lisa Levin, uh, I also heard uh, the mayor talk about redeploying city staff. Uh, Would that be useful at all? Absolutely.
3: I know that, for example, in Great County, they have taken some of the county staff in places that are no longer operating like libraries and uh, training up staff to go into homes and help provide assistance. Uh, They could do things like answering the telephones, liaising with families, helping residents Skype with families, uh, helping with cleaning. There's all kinds of work, and uh, any hands are helpful uh, during this time. So, yes, if city staff could be redeployed across municipalities across Ontario, that is a definite possibility. You,
1: you know, you mentioned calling, and, and we had a, a caller here on this show underline a, a heartbreaking situation And I'm wondering if there's anything that can be done to address it. So she has a brother who is at Eatonville, which is one of the hardest hit. His roommate died, and she has been trying for days to get through to find out whether he has been tested and what the result is. And someone did help her with a Skype call, and it was clear that he, he has not been taken out of his bed for uh, days and he has a huge beard and, and all of that. So is there some thought to, uh, you know, uh, maybe somebody answering calls like that?
3: Well, for sure. Um, so we're trying to encourage our, our member homes to have people answer calls and bring in volunteers. But when a home is in a really dire situation and some homes are, and if your choice is answer the call or feed someone or answer the call or change their incontinence product, then the decision is made to provide care. It You shouldn't have to make that choice, and homes should not be in this position. Um, but unfortunately, there seem to be a few homes in the province that we're hearing about that are in very desperate
2: situations.
1: Uh, Dr. Hodges, uh, anybody on your team been asked to do anything, I guess, more or less administrative like that?
2: Oh, absolutely. You know the the support needs to be as comprehensive as possible. Again, I want to underscore the excellent um, ability and dedication of the the care home staff. This is really critical, and the command structure in place. So we asked them, what can we help with? We helped with administrative staffing. We've helped to relieve the uh, administrative staff themselves with other executives who can cover for them so they can have a day off. Some folks have not had a day off for two weeks and they're often working 16 or longer hour days. So I think that's a very important point that the frontline care of course is absolutely critical, but there are a lot of other roles that our teams have been playing and that partner hospitals can play to help relieve the burden.
1: Interesting, uh, you know, the situation in Quebec is quite dire. And the premier put a call. He's called in the military, but he also called on doctors to come into long-term care homes. And uh, then uh, nurses unions and and other unions got up in arms because they were to be paid $211 an hour. Uh, Do either of you have a comment on that? You know,
3: I I don't. I don't really know exactly what's going on in Quebec, but I know that at this uh, time we are asking everyone to work together collaboratively to solve this problem to care for residents. And we need everyone's help. We need nurses. We need uh, PSWs. We need dental hygienists. We need doctors. We need anybody, library workers. Um, there's a ministry has a website where people can go on and uh, then be matched up uh, with homes that need help. And, you know, I really have to give a big shout out to the workers that have stuck it out in the homes and that have been working these super long shifts. And it's, you know, they are truly the heroes of our healthcare system and then as well as those who've come to their rescue, like Dr. Hodges and his team.
1: Okay, I'm going to take, we, we just have a call from Norma in Mississauga. And Norma is the woman uh, who has a brother at Eatonville. And I think she's got an update for it, which I am very anxious to hear. Hello, Norma. How are you?
4: Good, good afternoon, Libby. God bless your show. Thank because you. Once we spoke and I told the terrible situation my brother was in, I received a call on Monday evening that says from the executive director that says she will follow up. And the first thing she will do is to get someone to shave him, because that was the worst part of his condition. And then yesterday, a charge nurse called me and said um, they gave him a bed bath, and they changed his bed. Those are basic things which should have been done without me begging and I just received another call now from Eatonville charge nurse who said he is up in the chair after four weeks in bed. So I asked her, has his skin broken down? She says the PSW did not report to that. And she says he is in good spirit because he is now able to look out the window. So I just want to say thanks so very much because I don't think anything would have been done for my brother if I had not brought it to the
1: attention of your show. God bless you. I I uh, I, I hesitate to take credit for that, but but I think it's good that you were speaking up. Has he been tested, Norma?
4: Yes, that's another thing. Um, yesterday morning. One of the DOCs, the director of care, called and said, I have good news for you. Your brother's results is negative. Oh, thank God. And I, oh, that's what I could just squeal and I said, thank you so much. But do you know? If he has gotten any care, she says that's in the hands of the charge nurse, but the charge nurse did call yesterday, so at least I know he's looking
1: partly like a human being and he's not positive that's uh that must be such a relief for you norma thank you so much for updating us because we we were all you know wondering what was happening and it sounds like uh that the situation is turning out uh, as well as it could be expected yeah and i thank you on twitter last evening oh oh i guess i wasn't on twitter enough norma <laughs> thank, thank you, you so, so much so very much Okay, so some situations, it appears, are are getting resolved. That would be very good news, Lisa. And the testing? So the province is
3: increasing the amount of testing that's going to be done in homes, and their goal is ultimately to test all residents and all staff, starting with homes that are in outbreak and that have the most critical situations. And that's a really important weapon in this fight against COVID-19, is to know where it is and where it isn't, because you can't see it always.
1: Exactly, and we keep heal- hearing about the ramp up of testing. I mean, you know, frankly, I'm surprised that hasn't already been happening. So, when will that blanket testing of long term care homes start? Well, like I sorry, sorry, go ahead, Doctor Hodges.
2: I was just going to say, yeah, the directive came out last night. I should say that the homes have been doing quite a lot of testing. Uh, that's what we've noticed. One of the problems, though, is it's, a, it's um, they've, they've had to deal with uh, a lot of different kinds of labs and systems. So, at least as far as the thirteen homes we're working with today, we have our family health team. Um, my colleague Dr. Camille Lemieux and her team have deployed to all the homes and they're rapidly going through they're about halfway done all of the residents of the thirteen homes so it's it's something that I think is a, is a ramping up of something that was going on but was a little bit patchwork, and having this baseline testing of all of all um, uh, residents and all staff, by the way, will be a really important tool for us to uh, to work from. Uh,
1: you know, I, I find it interesting. I mean, thank goodness Norma's brother is negative, uh, but he was in the same room as someone who died. And we keep hearing, you know, how uh, older people don't have very good immune systems. And, and I'm Curious that there might be that there are people who would be less prone to to infection in a in a place like that with with an outbreak. I keep wondering, is there something in addition to what we know? Is there something genetic or something?
2: Oh, there are many unknown factors with this virus, and our scientists are uh, across Canada and the world are trying to understand it as rapidly as possible. I met a wonderful, very healthy 102-year-old on my rounds on Saturday who shows no sign of the virus and no sign of slowing down. I think uh, among our seniors' population, uh, there are uh, a, a wide range of health conditions, and we know that certain people are are more vulnerable. But there are definitely going to be factors such as uh, genetic predisposition and other health factors that will uh, that we will probably understand better uh, over time. So it's absolutely not the case that everyone will become a positive when exposed and certainly not that everyone will die from it. It's, it's, uh, it does have a high mortality, but, uh, there are already wonderful stories uh, on social media of people, including our Toronto Western. We had a celebration for the first two COVID positive patients, uh, going home, uh, fully recovered. So I, I do think the message of optimism, it just with, with with realism, of course, but uh, that we need to be optimistic, and many people will recover or not get not get COVID at all.
1: Okay well I I also uh, want to highlight it was it was uh, very nice of Norma to thank us. I w- I w- want to uh, point out that uh, as soon as we heard from her we talked to our colleagues at CARP and CARP was in touch with the nursing home and with the Lynn and even with an MPP and uh so uh you know uh, I, I, CARP deserves a lot of credit for getting something done there so thank you CARP uh uh, the other question I have, Lisa Levin, because another thing that I am surprised that is taking so long, so personal support workers have been barred from working in more than one facility, and there is news that they will get some kind of top-up to their pay. And these are people who generally, they make very little money, and if you're taking away their four or their six hours at a second home, you know, you, you could be taking away their grocery money.
3: What's happening in a lot of homes is they're saying to PSWs, if you stay with us exclusively, then we will pay you as a full-time worker. And the government has been providing or will be providing more money to homes to be able to do that. So hopefully that will help. But regardless, uh, we do need to have hazard pay for our PSWs who are going into these you know, very challenging environments. If grocery workers can get more money, then certainly PSWs should get that. And so, yes, I do hope that something comes out there
1: is. Do you have any kind of ETA? I mean, again, I'm uh, this is one of the things where, you know, I'm sort of shaking my head wondering, you know, why isn't that happening? Why are the federal and provincial governments sort of, uh, you know, pointing at each other?
3: Well, the federal government did make an announcement. So I I can't answer this. I don't work in government. But, uh, you know, we know how bureaucracy can take some time. So and then you have to go through levels of government. So maybe the province uh, was waiting for the federal government to announce something and now they got to figure it out so
1: Amina, I, I, I hope did it's coming talk soon i did talk to the minister for seniors yesterday and, and she sort of said well yeah we're making the money available but we don't have a mechanism to distribute it and it's um yeah uh it, it seems pretty challenging uh i'm going to take a question here from al in brantford hi al how are you doing there libby fine how are you my question to anybody is, is, has anybody done a survey on
2: the amount of, or well, what the percentage with seniors not in care places are getting the disease? And if they do, how many are recovering? Or whether it's more because of secondary illnesses in those uh, homes.
1: Okay, and, who and wants, care places. I, most, most of the victims, my understanding, are people who are over 60. That's a pretty broad swath. Dr. Hodges? Yes.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> thank you for your question. Uh, one of the challenges that we've had in Canada is the, and many places, is getting enough testing to understand the rate in the population at large. So we don't actually have a really good understanding of of uh, how many people are infected. Many people get a mild illness or no illness at all and recover. So um, there is a definite huge ramping up going on uh, in recent days, and I think we'll have a better baseline. But uh, to answer your question directly, no, I'm not aware of a really good study that compares the number of infections among seniors who live in the community with those who live in communal uh, or, or institutional homes. But I have to tell you that, of course, the thing that's become so obvious is that um, in an institution, whether it's long-term care or a prison or a home for uh, special needs children, etc., it is the proximity that's the problem. And for, for people who wonder about the value of social distancing and the need for us to stay apart, this is exactly the experiment that has shown it. And, and the challenge in, our, in the institutions is to change the environment rapidly so that there's enough space so that it doesn't spread easily between people.
1: Okay, I have uh, one more question before I wrap things up here. And this is based on something that I learned or heard uh, from one of my sources in government. You know, we've seen the modeling uh, that shows that we've peaked and we're going down. But I was told that some of that modeling shows that they would expect uh, the peak and a downward trend in communal settings like long-term care, like prisons uh, to start uh, at the beginning of May, around May 4th. Are, are you aware of anything like that? Well, I, I can answer what I know, which is that it seems that over the last
3: few days, the number of homes getting uh, having outbreaks has decreased. And I think today there wasn't even a new home that had one, whereas at the beginning there was 10 a day or more. So I'm seeing what seems to be a slowing down, but I don't know what Dr. Hodges has, uh, has noticed.
2: Yeah, if you study every graph of every, and all the media are wonderful about creating these graphs and trying to project. But every country is a little bit different, um, for sure. I mean, the, the, my major job is is in the uh, acute care hospital, Toronto General and Western and Princess Margaret. And there, for sure, we've seen a blunting. Um, but I don't think we've quite reached the peak for the communal institutions. I do want to just add the caution, though, before we kind of open the floodgates and just think we're going back to normal, to be very cautious about what's happened in Japan and Singapore and other people where there's been a second wave. So the whole idea of the peak is something that we should treat with care and be very, very rigorous in our thinking about how we um, return to some degree of normality and doing it carefully.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Brian Hodges and Lisa Levin. I appreciate your time and hope to talk to you again soon. Okay, take Thank care, you Libby. so much.